0: Tired of having mature conversations with people who disagree with you? Now you can avoid agitating situations and touchy subjects with Volatile. For only $99.99 and all of your empathy, this versatile tile can be yours today. Just call 1-833-3-VOLATILE to place your order. Call now and we'll throw in Volatile to Go, a mini version of this incredible product that will do exactly what Volatile does, only you can take it with you wherever you go. Don't wait. Call 1-833-3-VOLATILE today. I'm gonna miss that video. Well, hey, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been sort of having fun with this idea of volatile. But obviously, what we're really talking about is how volatile our culture has gotten. Um, our families are volatile. Workplaces are volatile. And just the world that we live in is more volatile than it probably ever has been. And we we really wanted to talk about several issues related to that. We, we talked in week one about where does volatility come from, and then we talked about how do we deal with volatility in communication, interpersonal communication. And then we talked about what, what, what do you do when you're in a relationship with a volatile person. That was last week. And then this week, uh, we're going to talk about how do you get rid of volatility in your life, and how do you actually work on reducing the volatility in your world. Well, that's a a tough topic because volatility is partially a habit. This is one of the things that I really realized as I was beginning to study this week is that we kind of get in the habit of being volatile or even how we respond to volatility in our world becomes a matter of habit. And so I just want to own up front this week that I'm not coming to you as a person who has this all figured out and has this mastered in my own life. I still struggle with this. Um, as a matter of fact, um, A good illustration of that was a few years ago, and I've mentioned this story before at New Spring, but a few years ago, I was in a hurry. I needed to get somewhere really quickly, and I'm usually not late. I'm usually one of those people that tends to be early to things, but for some reason, I was was late to something, and I was driving down Webb Road and was trying to sort of get there quickly. Speed limit was 40. I was doing 40-ish. And... There was this person in front of me, and how many of you know that it is some sort of law of the universe, that it's whenever you're actually in a hurry, that that's when you're going to end up behind somebody who's like driving 10 miles below the speed limit and taking some sort of sightseeing tour of Kansas. They're like driving and looking all over the place, and you want to just tell them, look, it's Kansas. There's nothing to see. Just keep on going. I got to get somewhere, you know? This person in front of me going like thirty miles an hour, and I'm thinking, this is, I guess, what the Bible was talking about—the trying of our faith produces patience. But this is not the day for that. Um, I got to get somewhere, and uh, so I, the, the problem was, I was, you know, webs, you know, you got two lanes, so you should be able to just get around the other person. But there was another car sort of blocking that, and I was really getting upset until that other car sort of got out of the way, and now I had a path where I could get around this slow moving person, and. If that had been all that I had done, if all that I had done was get around them and go about my business and go on to where I needed to be, then that would have been fine. But I didn't just do that. I felt like maybe the Lord was calling me to sort of help this person. I mean, I'm a teacher. That's what I do. So I thought maybe God was calling me to teach this person something about driving etiquette. And so at the time I was driving this little sporty thing, I had this fire engine red sports car. Um, it wasn't a, a, a midlife crisis car, I guess it was like a quarter life crisis car, and uh, it was six-speed manual transmission, and so what I decided to do was I thought to myself, if I put this in a very unnecessarily low gear, it's going to make a lot of noise, you know, and I can go around this person. While I'm doing that, it's going to go, you know, and hopefully that will wake up this person from whatever coma it is that they're driving in as they're going down Webb Road, and they will realize that they're not supposed to go 30 miles an hour in a 40 mile an hour. They will learn something. I'll feel better, and we all win, you know, um, So I do that, and as I'm just absolutely revving it up, and the RPMs on my gauge are going way up high, and it's really loud, you know, and I'm going across, I look over to give a nasty look. I look over to figure out who I should be praying for. (laughs) And as I go around, all I see is this new spring decal in the back window (laughs) of this car, and I think to myself, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And if you're here this morning, I'm sorry drive faster next time. Um, But we all struggle with this, don't we? We all struggle with volatility and how to deal with it. And it is kind of a matter of habit. So this is my promise to you this morning. We're going to talk about how to reduce that. This is what science tells us. Science tells us that if you want to deal with a bad habit, the best way is to replace it with good habits. To just say, I'm going to quit doing something that's being problematic is not good enough. You need to have a plan to do something different. So this is my promise to you. In the time that we spend together, I'm going to talk to you about five habits that can replace the negative habits of volatility that are in our life. So hang on, we're going to get to that. But first, just to lay some groundwork, let's review our definition of volatility. We've use this every week so far in the series, and it's just right out of the dictionary. Uh, To be volatile means to be liable to change rapidly and unpredictably, you know, especially for the worst, like when you're just driving down the road, the next thing you know, your pastor's pulling a Mario Andretti around you, you know. Volatile. And we're going to talk about um, how we can change our attitudes, or excuse me, our habits of volatility, but first I want to talk about three attitudes that we tend to have towards volatility in our life. And I think all of these attitudes we have a little bit of in each of us, but we've got to work on the proportions of this. So bear with me on this. We're going to talk about three kinds of attitudes when we encounter volatility within ourselves or within our world. The first is that of the troublemaker. Right, So we talked about this last week didn't we And we talked about Abigail and Nabal And we said that Nabal was a pot stir He was a troublemaker He had evil in his heart He was just, he was the kind of person that brought drama To whatever situation he happened to be in right? So there are people out there That are sort of unilaterally troublemakers um, And those are people that we tend to steer clear of But e- within each of us There's a little bit of an attitude sometimes Of the troublemaker Which is kind of what I was joking about with myself In that situation of driving before But we have a little bit of that but here's what i want to assume i want to assume that most of us in this room are not habitual troublemakers and that that probably that's probably a very small percentage of our life it's this next attitude that i'm mostly worried about that i think is growing in our culture and i think even growing within the ranks of christianity and that is the attitude of the bystander see a bystander doesn't actually cause a lot of trouble they don't actually uh, you know create a lot of Stress and tension. It's just that they don't do anything about it. They don't reduce it. They don't try to to deal with it. They just sort of, well, they're bystanders. They stand by it. They don't really do anything. In psychology, we have something called the bystander effect. It's a very interesting thing to study because we have all these stories of crimes being committed right within the eye line of large groups of people. Where someone is being hurt, or someone's being robbed, something's happened to somebody, and this large group of people stands by and watches, and nobody does anything. Right? We call that the bystander effect, or we see this in schools, where you have a, a, a small vulnerable child being beaten up by a larger, more powerful, aggressive child, and yet you've got all these students watching and nobody's doing anything. Well, the reason we call it the bystander effect is that if there was only one person that was observing this or two people that was observing it, the statistical chances are that they would get in there and do something. They would feel it was their responsibility to protect whoever was being harmed or to get in there and and deal with this, this threat. But what happens when we stand in a group of people is something in psychology we call the diffusion of responsibility or the scattering of responsibility. And we figure, look, I'm part of 30 people here, and if none of us are doing anything, then at least... I'm not responsible to do anything. This is my fear in our culture today, especially among us as Christians. We live in a world that's more and more volatile, but there's a lot of diffusion of responsibility. There's a lot of scattering of responsibility. And so I think a lot of times we just stand by and watch it get worse and worse and worse, and we're not doing much about it, being a bystander. I'm worried that while this part of my life is, is, I feel, under control, this part of my life I feel needs some work. That when I should be doing something to make situations less tense, or doing something to bring calm, or doing something to make things better in a tense situation, I'm just standing by. Well, the third kind of attitude is one that the Bible talks about a lot, and that's the attitude of the peacemaker. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks specifically about how important it is to be a peacemaker. Jesus said, blessed or in this case this means happy, happy are the peacemakers. Why? For they will be called the children of God. That people who actually get in there and do something to make peace in a difficult situation, when they actually are active agents to bring positive change in the middle of a negative situation, that that is so important that they will be recognized as the children of God. How many of you are familiar with the term hypocrite? Boy, that's a tough term, huh? Because I think a lot of people use use the idea that there are so many hypocrites out there that they shouldn't maybe go to church or they shouldn't consider Christianity as a possibility. They stay away from God because the hypocrites make them so upset. Well, I think that's... There's two sides to that coin. One side of that coin comes from the belief that Christians are somehow a group of people that think that they're perfect and they get together at church as a group of people that think that they're perfect and they celebrate their perfection and then they go out and prove that they're imperfect. Well, it's just a misplaced thought because the truth is at New Spring, we are not a group of people that think we're perfect getting together to celebrate our perfection. We're a group of people that know we're very imperfect getting together to celebrate a perfect savior who made a way for us to go to heaven even though we don't deserve to go there on our own, right? Right? That's, that's what this is really about. But there's another side to that coin, and that is that there are some things that we do as believers that sort of put distance between God's reputation and our reputation. Part of this is something we could do something about. See, what, what this says, and by the way, the term hypocrite, the original, the, where we get that word from actually means to be behind a mask. It means to live behind a mask. What this is saying is peacemakers will be recognized by people as the opposite of hypocrites. Peacemakers will be recognized by others as authentic and genuine, true followers of God. Wow. That's pretty huge. You say, now wait a minute, Jonathan. I'm, I'm tracking with you, except that I know enough about human nature to know that a person can't always make peace, right? I mean, you know, you can be in a relationship with a terrible person. You could be in a relationship with somebody like that Nabal we were talking about last week. There are situations where you just can't make peace, right? Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, the apostle Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 12. And I want you to notice he gives us the qualifier. So if we want to know whether or not I'm responsible to somehow make peace in this situation, Paul says, well, there are a couple qualifications. First off, if it is possible, If you're in a relationship with a neighbor, all chances are that it's not possible to make peace. There are people out there that just put up a wall against any peacemaking attempt. They're not willing to have somebody make peace with them. So first of all, Paul says, look, it's got to at least be possible, right? And then second of all, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, as far as it depends on you. So... Peacemakers are, first of all, optimistic, right? We're always looking for the possibility. A peacemaker is looking for the possibility that there could be peace. They're optimistic. But second of all, they're responsible. See, one of the challenges in our culture is that we're very comfortable playing the blame game. The reason I'm not doing the right thing is because they're not doing the right thing. If, they're, if they would do the right thing, then I would do the right thing. I mean, I see this all the time. Couples come into my office Um, for marriage coaching first session a lot of times they come in and they sort of spend most of the time telling me why they're aggravated at their spouse and they're expecting me to sort of referee their fights (laughs) that's so not going to happen I always tell them I refuse to referee their fights. For one thing, I can't move in with them. I have a family of my own. I have, you know, I have a job to do and stuff like that. And I always tell them that unless God himself descends from heaven with a gavel and decides he's going to weigh in on all of their fights, they're going to have to get used to nobody refereeing. Um, But they come in, and they'll tell me about it. And she will tell me, look, I would do the right thing if he would just straighten up. And he says to me, well, I would do the right thing if she would straighten up. And we sort of hold this on each other as some sort of standoff, waiting for the other person to do what they should do, and yet the Bible says that's not what being a peacemaker is about. Being a peacemaker is about doing what depends on me. So that means that I at least need to be able to stand before God and say, I did the right thing because it was the right thing to do, and it was their responsibility to determine how they responded. But I'm not going to get anywhere standing in front of God and saying, well, I would have done the right thing, but they weren't doing the right thing. Because God doesn't do the blame game. That's not his gig. Right? So we have to be able to to take some responsibility. So here's, here's where most of us need to think. If we're thinking about whether or not I'm responsible to be a peacemaker with this person in this situation, we need to ask, number one, have I exhausted all possibilities? for making peace. And that's a pretty heavy question. And the second question is, have I done everything that depends on me? Yeah, it's true. You can't always make peace in every situation, but I think if we were to be honest with ourselves, there are a lot of situations that we've given up on that there's still room for peace to be made. Well, here's what the Bible tells us is the payoff. If we're supposed to be peacemakers and Jesus says it's going to make us happy, then uh, could, could, could we open that up a little bit? What about being a peacemaker is going to make me happy? Jesus says this, uh, or excuse me, this, this is uh, in, the, in the book of James. Those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and they will reap a harvest of righteousness. And here, what righteousness means is rightness in our relationships. Almost all of us have experienced at some point some wrongness in our relationship. This is what Jesus promises. If we are planting seeds of peace, Eventually, we're going to reap a harvest of rightness in our relationships. That is a big deal. Did you know that maybe the most important factor in your health is the quality of the relationships that you're in? It predicts so much about your physical health, about your lifespan, so many things, the quality of your relationships. And what, Jesus, and what the Bible is saying is if we are planting seeds of peace, we are eventually going to reap a harvest of right relationships. Now, this is interesting. Anytime the Bible talks about sowing and reaping or planting and harvesting, my ears always perk up because there's two things it's trying to tell us. Number one is today we have a chance to do something that we can never go back and get again. When planting season is over, it's over, Right? So the Bible's telling me, Jonathan, you have a shot right now to do something that's going to change your future, but now is the time. If you want to really do this, now is the time. Now is the time to start planting those seeds of peace. But the other thing is, it talks to us about the potential to lock something in. When Wendy and I bought a house years ago, I kept asking the person at the bank as we were doing our closing paper. Now, this is fixed, right? I was very, I I want to make sure, I was very clear that I want to make sure this, this interest rate was fixed because I wanted to lock it in. I wanted the security of locking that in. And here's what the Bible's telling us. When we're sowing seeds of peace, we are locking in for ourselves that future of right relationships. That's a big deal. So we're gonna talk a little bit now about how do I sow those seeds of peace? What are those habits that I need to develop that are going to help me be successful in this. So I've brought you five habits that I think will help. We're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about it. So if you're a note taker, this would be a good time to take out pen, pencil, mascara, whatever you got that'll make a mark on a piece of paper. Um, Or take out the app and and fill in the blanks there. We're going to talk about five habits that will help you make peace. And by the way, I want to just talk to somebody who's tempted to go offline right now. Because you're like me, and you think that you're already a peacemaker because you don't like conflict. You're conflict-averse, right? Which I, I am, right? My wife and I, when we travel and talk to married groups, we, we, we tell them that there's two kinds of people in this world and they always marry each other, um, we call them runners and chasers. And we say, the, the, a chaser says, we're going to have this conversation right now. We're going to talk about it. We're going to deal with it. That's the only way to handle this is to deal with it head on. And we're going to talk about this right now. And the runner says, I am not having this conversation. Drop it, leave it alone. And they're pulling away while that chaser is coming after them full steam. And we teach that there's a law of runners and chasers that the faster a runner runs, the faster a chaser chases. And the faster a chaser chases, the faster a runner runs, right? But I say that for you to know that I am a Olympic, world-class runner. <laughs> I do not like conflict. I'm conflict-averse. But I want to make sure that we're all clear, especially if you're like me in this room, there is a difference between being a peace-liker and a peace-maker. I like peace. I will seek peace. But God has not called me to be a peace-liker, and God has not called me to be a peace-seeker. God has called me to be a peacemaker. Which means that I'm going to have to deal with some tension in my life. I'm going to have to deal with some conflict from time to time. I'm going to have to deal with some of that discomfort. But I need to have better habits and how to deal with it. So we're going to talk about those five habits and then we'll be done today. Here's the first one and one of my favorites. And that is don't waste time and energy looking for hidden meanings. This is a big one. And I think social media has made it worse. Right? Because now it's like, well, why didn't they like what I said? I made a post, and they didn't like it. They didn't share it. And I put on there, share if you love Jesus, and they didn't share it. <laughs> so what does that say about them, you know? And we said, what did they mean by that? Or, then they, or they post something on our thread, and we go, what did they mean by what they said? I can't tell. If only they'd posted an emoji so I could see what tone of voice they were trying to say this in. But since they didn't post an emoji, I'm left to wonder, what did they mean by that? doesn't have to be in social media, does it? It can be just in regular, everyday, face-to-face conversation. Somebody says something to us, well, what do they mean by what they said? Human beings, we're instinctively, we're meaning makers. But the problem is, if we look for hidden meanings, we end up causing more trouble for ourselves. I had a couple come see me some years ago uh, for marriage coaching. They sat down, they said, Jonathan, uh, really, we have a great marriage. We only have one problem. Okay. We only have one problem. She, she says, you know, it's, it's my mother-in-law, right? She drives me crazy, but my husband doesn't see it. Right? She pays me these compliments, but inside the compliment is this jab that she's hidden. My husband doesn't see it, and it's driving me crazy. Like, they came, you know, they're out of town. They came in for the day the other day, uh, and, and first thing, they come into our house. They hadn't been in our, in our new house. They walked into our house, and the first thing my mother-in-law says to me, oh, what a cozy little house, And my husband is just bebopping along. Oh, mom says it's cozy or whatever. But I know that what she meant was it's a tiny house because they have a house that's like three times bigger than this. And she comes in and says, what a cozy little house. Well, I know what she means by that, even if my husband is oblivious. And it drives me nuts because she's criticizing our house. And you don't understand. We would have bought a bigger house. We thought about getting a bigger house, but, you know, we shopped around and this one is in the perfect place. Now she's giving me this whole long explanation about why they don't have a bigger house. And I don't care. I mean, you can live in whatever size house you want to, as far as I'm concerned, you know, more power to you. But but anyway, she said, so that really upset me, and then later in the day, one of my kids comes into the house, and a you know, kid been having a bad day, and I know there's some stuff going on in their life, and... And we kind of had this little exchange that, that got a little tense. And my kid kind of smarted off to me. And I gave him one of those looks. And he knew we were going to come back and talk about this later. But he dropped it and he went to his room. And I knew it wasn't the appropriate time and place to deal with it. We would, we would deal with it later. But my mother-in-law, all she saw was that this kid smarted off to me. And I let it go. And the first thing she said was, you parents today are so... And by the way, anytime somebody starts off with, you parents today, you know... Your parents today are so kind and compassionate, you know? If I had said something like that to my mom, I wouldn't have been able to sit down for a week. And I guess we turned out okay. She's like, I know what she's saying. She's saying we don't discipline our kids correctly. We're not parenting them correctly. If she was raising our kids, she would raise them differently. She disapproves. And it's just driving me nuts. But that wasn't the straw that broke the camel's back. The thing that was the, 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 the cherry on the whipped cream on the Sunday was later that night we went out to dinner, just the four of us, just my husband and I and the in laws. And we went to this nice place. My husband picked out the restaurant. And we don't get really crazy about dressing really formal for nice restaurants. I mean, we were business casual. It was, it was appropriate for the restaurant, but it was a, a nice place. My father-in-law wears this really expensive suit, and my mother-in-law is in this sort of like formal dress. And so just right off the bat, it was a little uncomfortable. there was a little bit of difference in how we dressed, but whatever. We go into the restaurant. We sit down. We start eating. At some point, my husband gets up to go to the bathroom, and my mother-in-law says this to me. She says, sweetie, you are so courageous. She's like, I wish I was courageous like you. I don't think I would ever have the confidence to wear something as casual as that to a place like this. Wow. So you're going to be surprised at the advice that I gave her, other than I did tell her husband to straighten up and pay attention. But other than that, um, I told her, you need to learn to be oblivious to the hidden messages. Don't pay attention to them. And you're not going to do that for your sake. You're going to do it for her sake. Let me show you why. Looking for hidden meanings trains the other person to keep playing games with you. If you keep looking for what is underneath the message, what is underneath the post, what they mean by that, what their tone means and all of that, they have got you on a very short leash. And they can yank that leash anytime that they want to. The point here is to teach them that they can't play these games with you, and the way to teach them that they can't play these games with you is to tell, take what other people tell you at face value, if that. There's some stuff you shouldn't even bother to take at face value, but at least we shouldn't go any farther than that, right? Right? So I told her, I said, you know, when your, when your mother-in-law says to you, you, you parents today are so gracious and kind to your kids because, you know, if, uh, if, if I'd done that my, you know, to my mom, I wouldn't have been able to sit down for a week. You tell her, oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, we are trying to be compassionate. And I'm sure your parents were probably nice people in several ways. When you go to dinner and she says, I don't think I would ever be courageous enough to wear something as casual as that to a place like this. You say, oh, sweetie, I'm sure you'll get there someday. Just keep working on it. (laughs) Don't let people give you the impression that they can play games with you by sending hidden messages. Make them say what they mean. Remember we said two weeks ago, that in a God follower's life, our yes should be yes and our no should be no, don't train them not to do that. Train them to tell you what they mean. And here's the deal. A lot of people at that point are just gonna go silent on you because they don't know how to tell people exactly what they mean, but either way, you win. You don't need that in your life. Here's what the Bible says about this. In Proverbs chapter 26, it says, honoring a fool or giving too much of yourself to a fool is as foolish as tying a stone to a slingshot. You got the picture, right? You take that stone, you zip tie it into that slingshot, and you pull it back as far as you can, and you aim, and then you let go. What's going to happen? You shoot your eye out, kid. Right? The Bible's saying we, give to, we start to dwell on a fool, that what it does is it just ends up hurting us. Look, maybe, maybe they're not foolish. Maybe they didn't mean anything. Okay, well, fine. Then if you take it at face value, then you don't have to worry about it. But if they are a fool and they did mean something about it, then still don't go there because all it's going to end up doing is hurting you and they win. They walk away from that knowing that they were able to yank that leash and, and upset you when ultimately if they, were gonna, if they want to go there, they should have to go there in so many words. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's the second thing. So we we said we're going to talk about five habits. The first one is we're going to quit looking for hidden messages. The second thing is we need to start paying attention to and believing the best and the boring. I say that because the worst and the exciting tends to be what our attention gravitates to. But that's problematic because the worst and the exciting tends to also be the most dramatic and it tends to introduce the most drama into our lives. I was at the grocery store the other day, and they have those little magazine racks as you go through to check out, you know, at the grocery store. And I was interested by the fact that on that magazine rack, there is like this gradient of reporting reputability represented there, right? Because on the one hand, you have like these tabloids where there is absolutely no fact-checking going on. You know that, right? Because you look at it, it says five-headed Martian lands in Minnesota, and you know nobody checked on that. So you know this is not exactly a very reputable organization that's that's producing this. All the way through, then there's a bunch of them in the middle that are, you know, still not tremendously to be trusted, but maybe they're, maybe they're a little closer to reality, a little more tethered to reality. And then you get to some of the more reputable magazines, names that you would recognize that you look at that and you go, okay, well at least I know they do have a fact checking department and they are trying to at least represent some version of the facts. See if this is not true. Notice that if you go from the tabloids, those are the worst and the exciting headlines. Those headlines will get your attention. Go all the way over to the reputable magazines and at that point, if you look at them in context, they actually look very boring, you know, because that's the way the truth is. When you get away from the drama and you get closer to the truth, it tends to be a lot more boring. And this is something that our society needs to really digest and understand, that if we want to be closer to the truth, we're all worried about fake news. If you want to be closer to the truth and if you want to live a life that's, that's characterized by less drama, the truth is the closer you get to that which is boring, you're probably getting pretty close. The more exciting it is, the more drama it's bringing into your life and the less the likelihood is that it's as accurate as it comes across as being. Let's take this to an even deeper place. And that is that it's not nearly as exciting when people do the right thing. Have you noticed that? you're not gonna open the Wichita Eagle tomorrow and read about some guy who got up on time in the morning yesterday, went to the YMCA, worked out, went to work, was kind to his co-workers, was uh, honest in his business dealings, treated people with respect and with kindness, then went home and had a family dinner, loved on his kids, loved on his wife, uh, got to bed at a decent hour and was ready to get up the next day and started all over again because people would read that and go, this is ridiculously boring, why would they put this in the news? And yet, that is what a healthy life looks like, Yeah. So if we want to have a healthy life, then we've got to be willing to recognize that if I'm looking at either the worst and the exciting or the best and the boring, this is going to be the option that's going to actually be healthy for me. Here's what the Bible says about this. This is in Proverbs 18. Solomon says, Rumors are dainty morsels that sink deep into one's heart. Well, I think I kind of understand what Solomon's talking about because I'm trying to diet. So I understand what dainty morsels are. Walmart has these cookies, you see. They're these little pieces of heaven. They're sugar cookies, right? And they have this glob of icing on the top and some sprinkles, not too much sprinkles, just, and that would ruin it, but just the right amount of sprinkles. And I I will know that I've gotten to heaven when I can eat as many of those as I want, because right now I could eat four or five of those at one sitting. My wife would go, how could you do that? But I so can. I so can. Um, (laughs) but I can't right now because I'm trying to diet. And here's what I've learned about those cookies. I've learned that those cookies are dainty morsels that sink deep into one's thighs. (laughs) Exciting today, problematic tomorrow, right? That's what Solomon's trying to tell us about the worst and the exciting, is that it is exciting today and it will get our attention today. It's a dainty morsel today, but it's a problem tomorrow. As Christians, we've got to decide, what do we want? Do we want a life of drama or do we want a life of peace? If we want a life of drama, then sure, let's pay attention to the craziness that's going on in our world and let's, let's digest a steady stream of negativity. Open up social media, you'll get there, right? But if we want peace, we're going to have to be very careful about what we let in. And by the way, here's a dirty little secret and kind of a side point, and that is that bystanders can actually like the drama without participating in it. You don't have to be a pot stirrer to be a pot tender. Some of us stand by and we watch those threads on social media or we watch those threads on a blog post and it's not like we're hopping in there and getting into these shouting matches but we kind of like reading them. Oh, they stepped in it now, you know? We're watching to see what happens instead. That's not being a peacemaker. That's just standing by and watching the harm come to our society and to people that really need help. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, "A wise person is hungry for knowledge, while the fool feeds on trash." It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? God's saying, "Jonathan, if you want to lose weight, you need to hunger for healthy things. You want to put on thirty more pounds? Yeah, just go eat junk food." It's really what the Bible's saying here about what we allow into our the gate of our mind. If we want to be healthy, we need to hunger for healthy stuff. If we want to have a life where it's full of drama, then yeah, we can just keep on digesting trash, but that's what's going to happen. All right, my time is very limited. Let's go on to habit number three. Habit number three is this. Be a truth teller, not a secret keeper. This is very important if you happen to be a compassionate person because compassionate people have a target marked on them because people know that if, they're, if they want to complain about somebody else, you are the person to go talk to. If you're a compassionate person, they will find you, and they will come complain about why so-and-so is a problem, and why so-and-so is difficult, and here's what they will want from you. They will want you to get in their little red wagon so they can pull you around, and you will adopt their feelings about this person so that you will now own their feelings, even though they weren't your feelings to start with, and so that you will keep their secret about how they feel. But you can't afford to do that. The Bible says in the book of Titus, Christians must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Listen, when somebody wants to get you to adopt their slanderous feelings about somebody else, you've got to say, look, I, I can't afford to do that. I can't afford to slander you. I can't afford to slander them. I've got to be humble in your eyes. I've got to be humble in their eyes. My job is to be respectful to everybody. I can't be respectful to everybody and be in this little powwow that you want to have in private where you want me to keep a secret about how bad you feel about so-and-so. I mean, there, are, there is an exception, and it's important for me to mention it. If somebody comes and tells you they're being physically abused, obviously, then that's, that's a case in which you can be a great friend to them, help them get help, uh, to reach out to, to be helped from the authorities and that sort of thing. But this isn't what, you guys understand, this isn't most of what we're talking about. Most of what we're talking about, if somebody just wants to come to you to gripe about somebody else, in that situation, you shouldn't be a secret keeper. That's not what God has called you to be. Sometimes I'll be talking to people about this and they'll say to me, Jonathan, you just don't get it. This is my personality. This is my spiritual gift. I have the spiritual gift of being a sounding board for people. No, not a sounding board. Soundboard is something you find inside a piano. You're not a soundboard. You're a trash can. You're letting people dump their trash in you. They're using you. When they're coming around and they're giving you all their negative stuff about other people, they are using you. They're putting their trash inside you and you've got to tell them, look, I'm not your garbage pail. I'm not a sounding board. Here's, here's what the Bible says. By the way, would you like to know that Jesus actually gives us a very clear idea of what we should do if somebody wants to come and gripe to us about somebody else? Because Jesus says, what we should do if we have a problem with somebody. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. And then Jesus even goes on to say, and if they won't listen to you, bring another person with you. But notice that Jesus' plan is that if person A has a person with problem B, person A should talk to person B about about it. That's the Jesus plan. Person A doesn't go talk to person C about it, because you know what? Person C can't do anything about it other than have to make a really hard call whether, who's, who am I going to be loyal to now? Here's the way it should work, right? So if you're, for, for people that are bystanders, we said there are three different attitudes or three different kinds of people. There's troublemakers, bystanders, and peacemakers. This is what it looks like when a person comes to a bystander and says how upset they are with Bob. Bob makes me so mad. Bob's just out to get me. Bob's always causing me problems. I don't like Bob, right? And a bystander says, like, I, I can see that Bob has really frustrated you. It's true, he can be a real pain sometimes. And now we're going to have this long conversation about Bob. By the time we're done, both of us are going to hate Bob, right? You walked in this morning. You didn't have any strong feelings about Bob, You didn't love him, you didn't hate him, you're just kind of in the middle. But now you're talking to this other person, and now all you really remember are the things you don't like about Bob, and by the time you're done, you're both against Bob. You're starting like this anti-Bob thing that's going on between the two of you, and you're recruiting new people. This is what it looks like with a peacemaker. I can see that Bob has really frustrated you. Let's go talk to Bob! That's what it's supposed to look like. You got a problem with Bob? All right, let's go talk to Bob. You got a problem with Mary? Okay, let's go talk to Mary. Here's what's going to happen. One of two things is going to happen. The most unlikely thing is that person is going to go, you know what? Yeah, I really could use some help. I, I probably should talk to them and it would be good if you would come with me. That's very unlikely, but it's a possibility. Most likely what's going to happen is that person is never going to come talk to you ever again for the rest of your life about anybody that they're upset with because they are going to be scared to death that the first thing you're going to say is, well, let's go talk to them about it. Either way, you win. We don't need that drama in our lives. Okay, here's number four. Fourth habit that we need to develop, and that is this. Talk less and listen more. So much of the drama in our world would be lessened if we would adopt this stance. Talk less, listen more. The Bible says this in the book of James. The Bible says that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. Because if we become quick to get angry, human anger does not produce the rightness that God desires, or the rightness in our relationships we just talked about before. What happens when we plant seeds of peace, we get a harvest of rightness in our relationships. But if we talk too much, and we don't listen enough, and we get angry, which comes from talking too much and not listening enough, then what do we do? We basically ruin that harvest of right relationships. We need to talk less and listen more. I told this story some time ago, but I, and, I, and I didn't tell it in any of the three early services, but um, some time ago, I had a couple in my office that, at the time, I had these two swivel chairs, so I would sit the couple, and they would look at each other, and one of the things I do when I work with couples is I do what I call structured conversations, so they bring in a conversation that they don't have any success with at home, and I'm going to sit aside them and try to help them through this conversation, try to coach them through it. When we were having this conversation, this hus- husband and wife were talking with each other, and they were doing pretty well, and all of a sudden she drops a bomb in the middle of the room. She says, in 20 years, you've never shown me that you love me. In 20 years, you've, you've never proved your love for me. Got any, got any guess what the first words out of his mouth were? That's ridiculous. I can't understand why you would say that. I, I could give you, now he's talking to me, I could give you five reasons, five, five examples of how I've shown my love for her in the last week. And he starts going on and on, and I guarantee you, the moment that he said that's ridiculous, she quit listening. She's checked out, she's somewhere else. Either that or she's getting angrier with every th- word that comes out of his mouth. So, benevolently, I, I told him, I said, time out. I want you to think for a minute about the things that she just said, and I want to remind you that i get I get right now that you don't agree with her about everything that she said, but for a minute, I just want you to think about what she said. You guys are empty nesters now, you weren't before it's new for her she's been a stay at home mom forever now she's trying to figure out what she's going to do she You said you know maybe she' start another career, but she's scared, maybe she doesn't know how to start another career she's very It's very difficult for her you're traveling. Most of the week, she doesn't see you most of the time. She's trying, to, she's trying to figure out now how are you going to be close after all these years. The kids have been your life, and now it's just the two of you, but you're gone most of the time. Things are tense when you are home, most of the time when you are home. And I know you don't think it's this way. She thinks when you're home, most of the time you're on the computer or on the phone. And she's starting to feel like she's going to be experiencing feelings of loneliness for the rest of her life. Now, I want you to look at her, and I want you to finish this sentence. I want you to start the sentence with, if I felt the way that you just said that you feel. And then just finish the sentence. I'm hoping he can do this, right? He looks at her and he says, if I felt the way that you just said that you feel, I don't think I could get out of bed in the morning. He said, I really don't think I could put one foot in front of the other. I think I would be so depressed and so anxious that I wouldn't know how to go on. And all of a sudden, tears coming down her cheeks and she's saying, he just heard me for the very first time. Well, you get, I didn't do that. That wasn't anything that I did. He was capable of doing that all along. He's just used to talking and not listening. We think our job is to fix the other person's perception. We think the job is to set the other person straight when so often the main thing that we need to do is hear what the other person is trying to tell us. We need to talk less and listen more. Proverbs eighteen two says this, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. So if we word that backwards... A wise person understands, understanding first, my opinion second, right? Okay, here's the last little bit, the last habit. And if I lost any of you, if some of you drifted off at some point during the message, I need you to wake up and get back online with this last point because this is the most important. If this is the only thing you take take away from the message this week, it will be helpful for you. And that is this. If you really want to be a peacemaker in your life, you need to love when you don't feel like it. Love when you don't feel like it. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Every once in a while, I'll have some guy come in my office, sit down across from me and say, Jonathan, I'm at this stage in my discipleship journey where I... I just feel that God is calling me to, to search out the deep things of the Bible, search out the deep thing. You know, I, I feel that I've gotten to a point where I need to go deeper and, 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 and get deeper. So what, what do you think that I should do? And I said, well, I tell you what, let's open up Matthew 5. It says, I say to you, love your enemies. How are we doing with that? Are we there yet? Because for me, this is about as deep as the scripture gets. Love your enemies. That is a pretty tall order. And it's one that's going to be a lifelong journey for most of us. And yet, that's how we make peace is to choose to love when we don't feel like it. By the way, have we seen this? Uh, have we seen this before? If we love our enemies, we will be acting as true children of our Father in heaven. Yes, we have seen that before. Remember that first passage that we read? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called what? The children of God. In every wedding that I perform, I have, I have at least one verse that has always stayed the same. I've, I've massaged and changed my wedding message over the years a little bit here and there, but there's one verse that has always been there, and it's Romans 5, 8, and 9. It says this, but God showed his great love for us, or your translation may say God demonstrated true love for us, by sending Christ to die for us, and then the most important prepositional phrase in all of the Bible, while we were still sinners, The Bible says, and since we have been made right, and by this means to be made at peace, in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. What is the point here? The point is that it took Jesus being willing to sacrifice in the face of my imperfection in order for there to be peace between me and God. And that is the template. That is the picture. That if there's going to be peace, there must be somebody who is willing to sacrifice in the face of imperfection. As a matter of fact, we could just say at the end of this message that peacemaking is really just showing God's love to imperfect people. And we've got some work to do in that area. I'm going to give you this story, and then we'll be done. Some of you ladies in this room have probably read books that have been written by a lady named Shannon Etheridge. She's a very popular uh, women's Christian author, and uh, she's written several books that you would recognize, and, and she often writes on the topic of guilt and shame, because she went through a very difficult circumstance as a young lady. At the age of 16, she had just learned how to drive, and she was out for a drive one day, and she wasn't, uh, apparently, from what I understand, she wasn't really paying attention, and she accidentally struck a bicyclist and ran over that bicyclist and killed her. As a, can you imagine, as a 16-year-old, when you weren't paying attention, you're still new to driving, and all of a sudden, you've taken this lady's life. I mean, it's, pretty serious deal. The investigation crew comes out and they look at the skid marks and so forth and they say, yeah, this was very definitely her fault. This was an accident that was that was driver-caused. And so, they take her to the police station. They're going to charge her, I'm assuming, with vehicular manslaughter. She's a Christian young lady but going through one of the most difficult times of her life. So, The husband of the woman who was killed was a Christian as well. Now, by the way, I I want you to take a second, guys, husbands in this room, and think about what it would be like if you got a phone call that your wife had been run over by uh, another driver, was now dead, and and it was the driver's fault, and it was this careless teenage girl who wasn't paying attention while she was driving. How would you feel? What kind of attitude would you have when the police asked you to come into the station to give your statement? He comes in there, and the first thing that he says is, I don't want any charges pressed. And he sat down across from the 16-year-old girl, and he said, you can't let this define the rest of your life. God is going to strengthen you through this, and you're going to get through this on the other side, and you're going to be better for it. As a matter of fact, he said, I would love to see Marjorie, Marjorie was his wife's name, I would love to see Marjorie's legacy as a Christian lady continue through you. I don't know a much better example of somebody showing love in the face of imperfection, of somebody showing God's grace in the face of imperfection. But I also think it's very interesting that it is this young lady who grew up to write books that have touched the hearts of millions of of Christian women across this world, that's sowing seeds of peace and reaping a harvest of rightness. That's one person. I'm going to guess in this room right now there's probably around 1,400 people. That would be my guess. What would happen if the 1,400 people in this room left here determined to be peacemakers? To show God's love even in the face of imperfection. Imagine how we could change the world. If one man could change the world in that way, what could we do if we were ready to show God's love even when people don't deserve it, even when they're imperfect to us? Well, that's our challenge. That's what we're called to do if we truly are God followers. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for the fact that you've made peace with us. Help us to live out that calling to make peace with others. In the name of Jesus, and we thank you for what will happen. In your name, amen. Thank you so much for being here this week. We'll see you next week.